0: Father in heaven, this morning as we open our Bibles, we're going we're to see you. We're going to see some things about you that we need to see. We're going to see us, and we're going to see us in relationship with you. That's going to warm our heart. We're also going to see some warnings, warnings we need to see. So I pray, Father, you'll help us do that. I pray you'll limit the distractions around us. I pray that you will limit the distractions within us and help us focus. I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was doing a little bit of math this last week. It was 34 years ago this week that I proposed to my wife. In fact, it'll be this coming weekend that that happened. It was kind of a week-long experience. Now, let me just walk you through it. On Monday... My dad had to drive from Hutchison, Kansas to Manhattan, Kansas, and he had to do it for a very specific reason. I would bought a ring that I couldn't afford, and I had to borrow some money from him. So he came to give me that money so I could go pick up the ring that I had purchased for Tina. Now, it bothered her quite a bit because she knew my dad was in town. She knew I was going to dinner with him, and she wasn't invited. She was really quite bothered by that and had to try to figure out what was going on, but I didn't have an explanation, so I just left her bothered with it. That was on Monday. On Thursday, I bothered her even more because I had to drive from Manhattan, Kansas to Topeka, Kansas, about 60 miles away, to pick up her ring. Then I left from Topeka to drive to Council Grove, Kansas, about 60 miles to the south, to go visit with her parents and ask permission to marry her. I timed it just right so that I would be there during their lunch hour. Got there and her dad was eating a bowl of soup. He's a big fan of soup. Sitting at the table, he was eating a bowl of soup. When I sat down and I think her mom kind of figured out why I was there because... First time I'd ever shown up like that, and I was as nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. And so, while John was eating his bowl of soup, I just said, John, I'd like to ask your blessing to marry your daughter. He said, You got it. Just kept on eating, (laughs) just like that. I said, Well, I guess I could have made a phone call. (laughs) Perfect. So, I got back in the car and I drove the 38 miles back up to Manhattan, Kansas. While I was gone, Tina did something that she had never done before in her life. She skipped. A class. She was going to Kansas State University, first time she had ever in all of her days skipped a class. She knew that I would be so proud of her because I'd made quite a habit of it and so she was calling to tell me that she had finally skipped a class and she was celebrating it and I was going to celebrate it and actually what she wanted me to do was talk her off the cliff because she was feeling so guilty about having done it. She didn't know what to do and she needed an expert in that field to help her make her way through it. I wasn't there that was before the days of cell phones so she couldn't just call me on my cell phone she had to call the apartment where I was living and my roommate was home probably supposed to be in class he was at home when he answered the phone and she asked if I was there and and he said to her I wasn't she said well do you know where he is and he had to lie to her he just straight up had to lie to her and he did and he felt terrible about it but it was a pretty good lie at least in my mind and it kept her a bit off balance Well, that night, I I really had her on the ropes because I told her that I had dinner reservations for us the next night. I'd never had dinner reservations ever. And I said, it's at 7.15. I'd never picked her up at a specific time like that. Prior to that moment, I was like the cable guy. I could show up anywhere from 5 o'clock to 9 o'clock. That's that's the way our dates worked. But I told her she needed to be dressed up at 7.15. I'd take her to dinner. We're going to this fancy restaurant in Manhattan, Kansas called the Cotton Club. I believe I've only been there twice, and this was one of those times. We walked in like the young couple in love, and it was just after Valentine's Day, and I figured their staff had to have known what was going on. So they seated us between the grand piano, which had a Billy Joel wannabe sitting there, and he played loud and long, and the swinging door to the kitchen. Now, if you want a romantic environment, that's exactly where you want to be. You want to be sitting between the grand piano and the swinging door to the kitchen. Both of us ordered lemon, pepper, chicken, and twice-baked potatoes that night. That evening, we both found out we don't like lemon pepper chicken or twice-baked potatoes, but we checked it off our list, and personally, I believe that's where my adventurous eating came to a halt. After that, beef and a tater, and don't bake it twice. That's the way I feel about it. And so after that, I had this wonderful, wonderful idea on my mind. I knew exactly how it was going to work. I took her back out to the first place we ever kissed, Tuttle Creek Reservoir. Drove right to the same spot. And I told her that I just didn't think we should date anymore. That was my plan. I wanted a little more shock value than I got. Dee Dee Kibler has the right expression on her face. Tina didn't have that. She looked at me and said, no, (laughs) no. Cool, that was the proposal I was looking for. And because she said no from there, we started an adventure that has been going on now this August for 34 years. 34 years. Thank you very much. (laughs) We were married into ministry. It has always been a part of our life. Church ministry has always been a part of our life. Because of that, we've lived in five different states. We have three adult children. We have three wonderful grandchildren. We have loved five dogs through our 34-year ministry together, or marriage together. <clears throat> one of them the first one was a cocker spaniel we got a cocker spaniel because we both grew up with cocker spaniels our second dog i'll say it i'll say it and i know that i'll get abused for it that's okay was a poodle named gabriel we named him after the angel his name was gabriel and then since then we have had four black labs that have really captured our heart a lot of wonderful experiences we have traveled a lot of different places together in 34 years it's just been almost like a fairy tale but I have to tell you we made a decision 34 years ago to fiercely fiercely protect our marriage and we have we have fiercely protected our relationship we have been constantly watching for things that would come against it we have stood together against natural and unnatural enemies to our marriage we have fiercely protected it and that's the way it has to be, it really does. It has to be that way. And one of the fierce ways that we chose to protect our marriage all those years ago was to say that quitting is not an option. There's not a back door in this relationship. We're not quitting. And we never have. And we have never entertained the idea, nor have we allowed those words into our vocabulary. And as a result of that, now 34 years later, we're just able to look back and say, man, God's just been so good to us. He has been so good to us. I know that's not everybody's story, but that's ours. That's ours. Now, I have to add something else to our story so that everybody understands this. 34 years ago, Tina was fully aware of the fact that she was not number one in my life. And today, 34 years later, she still is not. I love her more than any human being on the face of this earth. I love her more today than I did then, but she is not number one in my life. 34 years ago, I knew the exact same thing about her. I was not number one in her life, and I still am not. And I want to believe, I think it's true, that she loves me more than any other human being on the face of this earth, but I am not number one in her life. And that's the way God would intend it to be. That's the way God would set it up. If we study marriage in Scripture, we can find a whole lot of biblical teaching on how it is supposed to work. And what we will discover very rapidly is that the person that we are married to is not supposed to be number one in our life. That belongs to someone else. That person is Jesus. And I want to show you the word that the Bible uses to describe that very thing. Join me in Colossians chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we started a study in this powerful little book, and man, I've been enjoying it. This morning, the Apostle Paul is going to take us into a description of who Jesus is that is absolutely mind-boggling. And he's going to show us a word that describes how we can know the role that Jesus is supposed to play in our life. I'll show it to you as soon as we get to it. Later on in our study of the book of Colossians, we'll come back to the subject of marriage. But we're not going to get there today. I just want you to know that this word applies even when we get there in this study. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, isn't that powerful teaching? That's Jesus. That's Jesus as the Apostle Paul would describe Him. But tucked away in the middle of that wonderful, powerful description right here at the end of verse 18 is the word that shows us the role that he is to maintain, be given and maintain in our life. The word is probably not one that we use all the time, but maybe we should. Here it is up on the screen. He is preeminent, preeminent. Now, in the illustration that I started with, what Tina knew 34 years ago and she knows today is that she is not preeminent in my life, nor am I preeminent in her life. We do not hold that first position. Now, because this is a word that we don't all use all the time, let's make sure we're breathing the same air on what it means. So take a look here. When we say Jesus is preeminent, We are saying he is first in everything, first in importance, first in position, first in honor, first in exaltation. That's what it means to say that someone is preeminent in our life. They are first, they hold the most important position, and then everything else is to be ordered underneath that position. I went through a list of things in my life and people in my life and I ordered them underneath Jesus. Thought about showing it to you this morning and then I just realized it's none of your business and so I'm not going to. But I encourage you to make your own list. Encourage you to take a look at it and see in all honesty how you would set the order of importance in your life. According to the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, Jesus needs to be number one. He needs to be number one. That is so important that the the Bible would actually give it its own term. He is to be preeminent. Now, when he arrives in that position in our lives, Paul would go on to show us that it completely changes how we see him. When Jesus becomes preeminent in your life, it will change how you see Him. I'm going to say that one more time because I really want it to soak in. When Jesus becomes preeminent in your life, it will change how you see Him. Take a look at this. I like the way this author says this. It means that our salvation is not about us. It's about Christ, for Him, through Him, and to Him. That's evident in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Do you see how it changes things? It's not about us any longer. It's about Him. When He becomes preeminent in our life, even our salvation will become about Him, not about us. You're going to have to chew on that for a little while. You're going to have to let that soak in. But let that happen. Do we really believe that? Do we live like that? Is Jesus really the preeminent one in our lives? Yes, he's very, very important to us. We invest much time serving him and praying to him and showing love to him. But it is not enough that Jesus have prominence in our lives. He must have preeminence in our lives. Jesus cannot simply be on our top ten list. He must be everything. Greg Stikes writes that. And I like the way he says it because it shows the difference between prominence and preeminence. Man, when we figure that out, when we figure that out, some cool stuff happens. And I'll show show you what that looks like in just a minute but first if you'll give me just a moment or two I want to deal with something that causes people to stumble a lot of folks this word causes them to stumble not preeminence another one that I'll show you in just a second in fact it has caused entire belief systems entire religious systems to stumble So give me just a minute to help you understand it and maybe even fix some of the stumbling that could have existed for you. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 together. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now join me in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, the term that we're talking about that causes people to have a huge problem is this one, firstborn. Jesus is firstborn. The people that stumble over this term find themselves believing that it means that Jesus is created, that he was not there from the beginning. But pay close attention to what Paul said in his first use of it. He is the firstborn of all creation. Helping us understand that Jesus was there at the point of creation. And he is the firstborn over the dead. The first one to come out of the grave. That's firstborn. But still, we stumble over it because in our minds, we think in terms of order. And therefore, we have to think in terms of creation. And that's what I mean when I say that entire faith systems, entire belief systems have struggled over this, believing that Jesus was created, that he is not God. He was created by God, and the word firstborn causes them to believe that. And that is a mistake. That is a huge mistake There are different places in Scripture that will speak to this. Here's just a list of some of them. Six different times Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, including these two times. Those are all in the New Testament. It may very well be that a passage in the Old Testament helps us understand or better understand the application with Jesus. Let me take you to the book of Psalms, right in the center of your Bible. Join me in the book of Psalms. Chapter 89, Psalm 89. We're going to start in verse 19. Psalm 89, verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers." He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Take a look again at verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now that's speaking of King David, David of the Old Testament. But a lot of theologians and scholars would tell you that in order for that verse to be fulfilled, it's actually a messianic verse. It's speaking of Jesus. But the key to understanding this whole idea of firstborn is found in the idea of, I will make him firstborn. It's not about order, it is about ranking. And in the culture of the Old Testament and the New, the idea of firstborn was exactly like that. It wasn't about order, it was about ranking. It was about the inheritance. It was about the position and the power. And David is a perfect example of how it works. He was not the firstborn son of Jesse, but he received the greater inheritance, the firstborn inheritance. He was given the position. He was given the role. Here's a good way of thinking about it. The word firstborn signifies priority. Culturally, the firstborn was not necessarily the oldest child. The term firstborn referred not to birth order, but to rank. The firstborn possessed the inheritance and leadership. Now, here's the thing about Jesus being called the firstborn that is so penetratingly cool. Just dial in right here. He makes us joint heirs with him, co-heirs with him. Scripture lays that out perfectly for us. The, The book of Romans and the book of Hebrews together will show us that we share in the inheritance of Jesus. Because of him, we are seen as children of God. Because of him, we are seen as joint heirs with him of all that the Lord has for us. Jesus willingly shares his inheritance with us. But he was given the rank of firstborn over all creation and over the dead by God. By God the Father. Because Jesus was there in the beginning, and he was there in the beginning, not just with God, but as God. John chapter 1 lays that out for us perfectly. So don't stumble over that word believing that it has to do with order and therefore Jesus has to be created. Look at the word for what it really means. It is a ranking, it is a position, and then get into the depth of it and understand that that ranking and that position has been gifted to you by Jesus. It's very cool once we see that. It is very cool once we see that. So the fact that Paul uses it twice in this section in Colossians chapter 1 really teaches us that we need to pay attention to it. So let's go back to Colossians 1 and watch what he does next because this is equally exciting. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now in this last section... Here's what Paul's doing. He is painting this amazing picture of relationship that we have with God through his son Jesus. He starts out by showing us who Jesus is, but now he's painting this wonderful picture of relationship. And right in the center of it is us. Right in the center of it are all those who would respond to his invitation to come into the painting, to come into the picture I love how Paul makes that segue as rapidly as he does. Here's Jesus, now here's you, and here's the relationship that he makes possible for us. That's a picture, that's a painting, and what a powerful one it is. Yet it also has within it an interesting word. Did you see it? Did you see it? Go back into your Bible, take a look. It's right at the start of verse 23. It's the word if. Up here on the screen, take a look. If. If. Now this is a transitional word. It's not capitalized. It's not starting a whole new thought. It is a transitional word. So we've looked at who Jesus is. And we have looked at how we come into his picture, this relational picture, and God's plan and desire for us. But then in the midst of the picture is this transitional word, if, if. Here's this relationship, and you can have it, if, if. There's a lot of people that would like to take this word out of the Bible, In fact, there are doctrines that seemingly conflict with one another, though they don't have to when it comes to this word, if. Two of those doctrines, we'll just put them up on the screen for you, are called eternal security, and the one that it seemingly conflicts with is called assurance of salvation. And like I say, they do not have to conflict, but they are both tied together with a similar question. That similar question is this. Can a person lose their salvation? Can a person lose their salvation? This tiny little word in Colossians chapter 1 opens up the door for that discussion. What you have to know is that both eternal security and assurance of salvation find their roots in a passage in the book of Romans. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 39. Again, it's the Apostle Paul who's doing the writing. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I said, eternal security and assurance of salvation both find their bearings in that passage. And the reality is very simple. God will never leave us nor forsake us. From Romans chapter 8, we could go to the book of Hebrews or we could go all the way back to Deuteronomy and we can find the exact same teaching. There is a quote from both or in both places that help us understand this. It's very simple. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what Jesus said. And we can take that to the bank. We can hold on to that for all we're worth. Jesus will never, Jesus will never, Jesus will never leave us. So what do we do with this if? How do we handle that? This is where it gets a little more difficult. The if comes into play on our side of the discussion. And the simple truth is, and the Bible speaks of it, There are people that come into relationship with God and and many, many hold on tight to that relationship and nothing ever comes against it. But There are other people that hold on loosely to that relationship and things come against it all the time and and sometimes they let go and sometimes they grab hold and sometimes they let go and sometimes they grab hold and sometimes they let go and sometimes they grab hold and there are some that had that relationship and something came against it. And they let go of it. And they walked away from the Lord. They left the relationship. And that's tough. Now you have to understand that, that in both of those situations, last two situations we talked about, those that hold on loosely and, and sometimes they walk away and they come back and they walk away and they come back. Those periods of walking away, man, that gets covered by the blood of Jesus. It's so beautiful. Even those that let go, they can come back. They can come back. And that's covered by the blood of Jesus, and the Lord welcomes them back in. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's God welcoming them back in. That can all be forgiven. Now, there are some people in the Bible who has warned us about it, that they let go so strongly that they venture into something called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's a discussion for another time, but it carries much deeper implications. Those are people that have tasted the heavenly gift. Those are people that have known the Lord. It's very few people, but there are some that fit in that category. So this if in Colossians chapter 1 leaves us saying, what do we do? How do we make sure that the if never comes against our faith? Well, the answer is simple. You fiercely protect your faith You spend a lot of time looking for the natural and unnatural enemies that would come against your relationship with Christ. You battle against those things. You're always on guard. You're always watching for them. Making sure that the if is always strong in your life. You do that by being ever alert. There are are illustrations that help us understand what that looks like, how the natural and unnatural enemies become, well, something that compromises our if. Let me show you one of them. We're going to look just at the church in Ephesus. Join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul loved this church. Oh, man. So did Jesus. Jesus. They loved him. Well, they loved both of them, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, Paul says. Oh, they love the Lord. But then let's fast forward to Revelation chapter 2 and listen to what Jesus says to that same group of people. Paul has just commended them For their love. Now listen to Revelation chapter 2. Remember I said Jesus loved this church? He writes a letter to them in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, now we have this really clear understanding of a natural enemy against faith. The natural enemy of the if. In this particular case, it would be the natural enemy we would title apathy. Here was a group of believers that were commended for their love. And then Jesus writes to them years later, about 40, and says, You have forsaken your first love. You've moved away from that. You're doing the right things. You're going through the motions. But you have forsaken your first love. The preeminent relationship. Come back to it, Jesus says. Come back to it. Well, when apathy creeps into the life of a believer, that's what happens. Jesus moves from the preeminent position in our lives down to number 2, number 3, number 4, number 5, number 6, number 7, number 8, number 9. And it is truly tragic when he disappears off our top 10 list. He's no longer preeminent. When Jesus starts to move down your list, your if is in danger. So you pay close attention to it. You see, Jesus is never going to move, Jesus is never going to leave you. You can be assured of that. And if you remain with him, eternal security, very true. That's why those two doctrines are not in conflict with one another. God's never going to leave us nor forsake us. But we can walk away if we don't protect our if. Protect your if. There are other enemies. It's not just apathy. I started to make a list and I stopped at five for the sake of time. Here they are in Scripture that backs each one of them up. The enemy of apathy, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1-7. through seven, We just looked at that. The obvious enemy of sin, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, look it up. The enemy of legalism, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. The enemy of false teaching, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that one is particularly dangerous. The enemy of fear, Matthew chapter 25, verse 25, that one equally dangerous. Those are natural enemies to our faith, and we have to work hard to keep them away. We have to be ever vigilant, watching for them and coming against them so that nothing, nothing causes us to walk away from the Lord. No matter what it is, nothing causes us to walk away from the Lord. So you might say, and I'd really appreciate it if you did, how, how do I do that, preacher? I, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well... You can do it simply by circling that if in Colossians chapter 1 and drawing an arrow back up to the word preeminence. Making sure that Jesus always remains preeminent in your life. Make sure he remains number one. This afternoon, I'd encourage you to sit down and think about a list of priorities in your life. Think about the things that matter to you the most and and be honest about it. So do it quietly and by yourself. Maybe you want to do it tomorrow morning. You're more of a morning person, not an afternoon person. Do it first thing in the morning. Make your list. It's none of my business. You don't have to show it to me. It's between you and the Lord. Just like my list is none of your business, and so I didn't show it to you. But God saw it. God saw it. You ask yourself, where does Jesus sit on your list? How visible is that to you and to Him and even to others? Where's He at? What role have you given him in your life? Take a look at it. Take a look at it. And if you need to make some changes, make some changes. That's the cool thing about Jesus. He may have started as number one and then he got moved down the list. Well, you can move him back up there. Move him back up. Get him up there where he needs to be. And then, look at the beauty of the the picture that he paints in relationship with us. You take a close look at where you're at in that picture. Won't you stand with me? We're going to pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for limiting the distractions as we ask you to. I appreciate that. And I pray, Lord, that we were all paying attention as we were in your word and as you were guiding us through it. I pray, Father, that we will move on into the application of what we heard and we'll do something with it. Lord, remind us always to make sure you're number one, that you are preeminent. When that's the case, The if won't even matter. It won't be an issue. So help us keep you in the right place. And Father, help us to fiercely protect what we have with you. And I pray, Lord, that we will trust that you are always doing your part. This morning, I know that we have some folks with us that need to make a first-time decision for you. I, I pray they will today I know that there are others that have some things that are coming against their faith I pray that they'll ask others to join them in praying about those things fighting against those things I pray for some that, that know there is an attack they just don't know what it is I pray that they'll seek the discernment of your spirit by talking to those that that know you and know you well to help them find what it is that's coming against their faith. And then I pray that they will feel your presence as you fight for them. Remind us often and, well, in fact, always that our walk with you is about you. We're just the lower part of the story, but it's all about you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.